turn in your scriptures, turn in your Bibles to the book of John. We'll be beginning in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. We will then go to John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, and then John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. Before we begin, before we look to the scriptures, I want to kind of clarify something I said last week. We talked about a book that came out several years ago and has been recently made into a movie and just some uh, very incorrect things it says about the gospel, it says about God's relationship to evil. And I said in the conclusion of my sermon that you should not buy the, that particular book. I just want to clarify that. I don't want to tell you to not read books. I don't want to tell you to not buy books, but I do want to warn you when, when I read books and come across books that say things that are contrary to what Scripture teaches us about God and about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the, the work, their work through the Holy Spirit on our behalf. But I don't want to forbid you from reading something because I, also, I want to assume that you guys have enough discernment that God has given you enough discernment through your own studies of the Scriptures, through your own uh, uh, walk with Jesus and walk with the Holy Spirit to be able to that you be able to decide on your own when you read something, when you see something, when you watch it on TV to know that uh, it is different. It is sometimes opposite of what the scriptures teach us. So if I recommend that you not read a book or I recommend that you not buy a book, I don't take that as a as a, a forbidding. You know, I'm not here. I, I'm not going to don't go buy that book. Um, but understand that in reading it and studying certain things, I th see things in culture and books and television on the radio that are definitely against the scripture. And I, I make recommendations, but I do trust that you guys are mature enough. I trust that you guys are smart enough to know when you come across these things to be able to figure it out on your own. And if you do pick up a book at some point or watch a television show and it says something that makes you go, hmm, then come see me and ask, talk to me and we'll, we'll look at it together and we can work it out together and hopefully come to an understanding of what Scripture teaches, uh, sometimes along with what we find in culture and sometimes against what we find in culture. So we'll look now to the Scriptures beginning in verse four, uh, excuse me, 15 of John chapter 14. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you see him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me. I am in you and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. 
All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. And now on to verse 26 of chapter 15. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then on to chapter 16, verse 5. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to Me by taking from what is Mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is Mine. That is why I said, to this, that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is Mine and make it known to you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, as we turn toward Your Word, we once again ask that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, that you make us attentive to what it is that you have to say to us, and that you give us your spirit to illuminate your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so while I was in seminary, I, I had to take four semesters of, of a class called Systematic Theology. Now, Systematic Theology is, is the study of well, the propositions of Scripture. Now, some of the propositions of Scripture is, uh, some of them are found for us there in Scripture. In the beginning, God created. And so a systematic theologian would take that particular proposition of what God has done, and they would go through Scripture, and they would find all the Scriptures that, that taught about His creation, whether they be in the Psalms or the Prophets or the Gospels or the history books, and they would explain what it meant that in the beginning God created. Now, you would think that we could understand it's very simple that when we say in the beginning God created, but as we study those different scriptures, it, it fleshes out for us, it shows us so much more the depth of God's providence in creation, the depth of God's sovereignty in creation, the beauty and the expanse and the reason for God creating things the way they did. I did that for four semesters, not only the theology of God, but the theology of salvation, the, the theology of creation, the theology of, of humanity, the, the theology of the church, and the theology of end times. 
one of the subjects that we spent some time on and, and an awful lot of ink has been spilled on over the last several centuries, at least two millennia, is called pneumatology or the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma being the Greek word for spirit, ology being from the, the Greek word logos, words, thoughts, studies about the spirit. And oftentimes studies about the spirit break down into arguments over what the spirit does or does not do in the church today. Are there sign gifts? Are there miracles? And oftentimes discussions on the work of the spirit boil down to a couple basic questions, usually just one. Do you believe the spirit is still at work in the church today? And usually what they mean by that is do you believe in things like sign gifts. And if you say no, then oftentimes you can be accused of believing that the Spirit is no longer at work in the church. And yet today I want to look at how the Spirit does work in the church and how the Spirit works in the lives of the people every day. But before we look at that, Jesus reminds or talks a little bit about obedience to His Word. And He says to the disciples, if you love me, and he actually talks about two things that show that the disciples would love him. Now, the first one is, if you love me, you would obey my teaching. And we'll, I'm going to touch on this a little bit today. We'll actually look at that a little bit more next week because it does tie in with Jesus' next statement on I am the vine, you are the branches and producing fruit on behalf of Jesus. But he looks at the disciples and he says, if you love me, you would keep my teachings. You would keep my commandments. Now, we oftentimes have a tendency to kind of twist this around in a couple different ways. First way we twist this particular saying around of, of keeping what Jesus has taught, whether it's through his life, through his, his miracles, his direct ethical uh, commands, or even the whole of Scripture as Jesus is the revelation of God and all of Scripture is the teaching of Christ. We have a tendency to look at that and go, okay, what Jesus says was, if I keep Jesus's commands, God will love me. And we turn Jesus's commands into a duty or a, a means of salvation, which the rest of Scripture tells us is not possible. There's nothing we can do. We'll look at this in a few minutes. But there's nothing we can do that can earn God's salvation. The other way we twist it around is we kind of look at it the other direction. Well, I'm going to show Jesus how much I love him. I'm just going to obey the snot out of those commandments. I'm going to obey every single one to the best of my ability better than anybody else. And then that way Jesus will know I love him. And what Jesus says here is there is a conditional statement here. It, it's not if you obey me, you love me. It's if you love me, you will obey me. Now we know from John, 1 John, the letter that you know, God loved us long before we loved Him. But when we show our love to Him, when we show our gratitude to Him for what He has done for us, obedience flows. When we learn more about what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, the example that He gave for us, the grace that He gave for us that we cannot mimic, obedience flows. When we Consider the depth of our depravity and, and the even greater depth of the grace that was poured into our worthlessness before God. Obedience flows. And it's a gradual thing. It's a, it's a 
It's a thing, it's, a, it's, a, it's the process of sanctification that we've talked about before. It is one of those works of the Holy Spirit that it, we're not necessarily going to look at in today's passage, but is explained throughout the rest of the scripture that the more we walk with the Spirit, the more we walk with Jesus, the more we walk with God, the more we walk with the triune God, we will find that depth of love growing. And as that depth of love grows, our desire to obey grows even more and more. In the immediate context for the disciples, this command to love and obey was the washing of the feet of the disciples, serving one another in love. And Jesus says, if you love me, that will happen. And as Jesus' teaching goes on, if you love me, you will sacrifice, not in the same way I do, but you will sacrifice on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we grow in our love for God, we will find that we obey him more and more. Secondly, he says to the disciples, if you loved me, you would be happy for me. You heard me say, verse 20, excuse me, verse 14, 28. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Many people have talked about what does Jesus mean here when he says the Father is greater than I. Well, in Jesus' human nature, the Father was, in a sense, greater than him. But at this point in Jesus' life, in this point in Jesus' ministry, in this point in the economy of the Trinity, what was greater about God the Father than God the Son? It was where He was. Consider Christ, who thought not equality with God something to be grasped onto, but emptied Himself and took on the form of the servant. Paul, in those words from Philippians chapter 2, is talking about the fact that Jesus lived in heaven. And in taking upon the form of a servant, he left the greater place for the lesser. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, almost as though I'm going home. You should be happy for me. If I leave you, it means I get to go back to the glorious presence of God. I get to go back to the throne room of God. I get to go back to fellowship with the Father, which was never broken, but there was a difference in the fellowship at that point. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'd be happy that I get to leave you. You would be happy that I am heading back to where I came from. And so Jesus talks about love to his disciples. He has poured out love upon them by calling them, by teaching them, and ultimately by dying for them and purchasing their salvation. And he says, because I love you, you will love me by being obedient and being happy for me that I am going. But we remember that these passages happen in the context of the trouble that the disciples feel in their heart because Jesus has announced to them that he's leaving that he is going away, is going to be glorified. We've talked about that before in the book of John, where he is glorified through the cross. His glorification is not, his exaltation is not only his ascension to heaven, but his being raised up on the cross is part of his glorification as well. And that is what troubles them. He has told them he is going to die, and he's told them he's going to leave. And he's, he's told them, don't be afraid. You know, we talked to you already. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me and my Father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. First thing Jesus tells them back in chapter 14 was, don't be troubled because this work will prepare the opportunity for you to dwell with God forever. 
And in today's passage, he says, don't be troubled because this glorification, this exaltation, this leaving will be an opportunity for you to be indwelt by God here on earth. And he says, I will do this by giving you my spirit. So Jesus promises the spirit to the, uh, to the disciples and he says, I am going to send you a spirit who has been with you and will be in you. How has the spirit been with them but not in them? at this point. Well, think back to Jesus' baptism. Jesus went to John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized him. And as the baptism occurred, the heavens spoke forth and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the eyewitness accounts show the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ in the form of the dove. And so in that sense, through the work of Christ, through the Spirit-empowered work of Christ, the Spirit has been with them. But when Jesus leaves, the relationship will change. Not only will he be with them, the Spirit will be in them. And we get a taste of God dwelling within us, the people of God having God the Spirit dwelling within them. We get a taste of what it will be like when we dwell forever in the presence, the unmediated presence of God. Because not only do we dwell forever with God, God dwells in us now here on this earth through the power of the Spirit. So what is the work of the Spirit that Jesus focuses on in these passages today? The work of the Spirit is twofold, the work of the Spirit in the world and the work of the Spirit in the believer. Remember for John, the world is the unbelievers. The world is those who have not believed and therefore received eternal life. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. Once you believe, you're no longer the world. And so we look at the spirit of the work in the world. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 8, Jesus says this, or excuse me, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I am going away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Spirit's work is to convince the world of three specific things, to convict of guilt, convict the world of guilt in regard to three specific things. The first is sin. In a sense, this is the Holy Spirit's work in the world of conscience. But Jesus says it's in one very specific area here. It's in regards to the world's unbelief, their lack of belief in Jesus. What is the most important thing that the world, as John defines it, needs? They need to believe in the Son, the one and only, the only begotten Son of God, so that they might have eternal life. And there is a sense in which that is the most important thing for the unbelieving world. We can call a world to live a moral life. We can preach for rightness and wrongness in actions and in behavior. But when it becomes to the unbelieving world, the biggest sin that they have to overcome is the sin of unbelief. What's the one sin that will get you eternally out of heaven? Unbelief. What's the one thing you can do all the way to your grave and ensure eternity separated from God? Unbelief. 
And so the Holy Spirit's work in the world is to convict the world of its unbelief. In other words, right now, out there in the world, there are a bunch of unbelieving people. And the Holy Spirit is shining the light of their unbelief upon them. Shining the light of their need to believe upon them. Now, we have this amazingly horrible talent as unbelieving people, is we can ignore that light. Paul says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we can live for quite a long time in that light, not admitting that we feel the pain of that light. But we know it's there because we pursue the next thing that the Holy Spirit judges and convicts the world about, and that is righteousness. What did Jesus do with the, with the religious leaders of his day? He taught them, but he confronted directly their standards of righteousness. And what did he say? They're not enough. Your righteousness is not enough. Your righteousness will not make you right with God. The world around us today has a standard of righteousness. If you'll allow me to, to say this, it's a rather low standard of righteousness. Basically, basically, if you can agree with the prevailing thought of the day and not give anybody grief when they disagree with you, the world considers you righteous today. Go along and get along is the standard of righteousness in our world. Be true to yourself. The Holy Spirit says that standard of righteousness is not right and it convicts the world of that. How do we know it convicts the world of that? Because no matter what we try to do to fill our sense of emptiness, as we achieve that standard of righteousness, it's not enough. We still try to fill our sense of emptiness. And Scripture tells us that in Isaiah 64, verse 6, a verse that have, you've heard many times. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Filthy rags is way too light a language there. At best, it is bandages that have been taken off a bloody, infectious wound. At best. That's what our righteousness is like before God. These pus, blood-filled bandages. I know, it's, it's bad. When, when we try to be righteous by our own standards, that's what God sees. And so the Holy Spirit is there to convict the world that their righteousness is not enough. Why? Because Jesus isn't here to do it anymore. That's one of the things Jesus did with the religious leaders. That's why he says to convict the world of righteousness because I'm going back to the Father. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. Now, this is kind of twofold. The first is the judgment that they will incur. But the second is the judgment between right and wrong. We talked a little bit about before earlier. What's one of the problems with the world? Right now, the world calls things that are evil, it calls them good. And things that are good, the world calls evil. Its judgment is mixed up. Its, its ability to determine right and wrong is mixed up. And the Holy Spirit is there to convict the world that their sense of judgment is wrong when they call good evil and evil good. So the Holy Spirit works in the world to convict of sin, to convict of faulty righteousness, and to convict of faulty judgment. But the Holy Spirit also works in the believer. There's several things that, that Jesus, three things we're going to look at that Jesus focuses on here. It has to do with teaching, has to do with taking 
the disciples deeper into the truth and also driving the teaching of Jesus home into the lives of the disciples. The first thing the Holy Spirit will do will bring to mind all that Jesus taught. Chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, chapter 15, 26 through 27, talk about, give us this statement that the Holy Spirit will call to mind all of those things that I have taught you. Now, our temptation is to jump straight to the fact, well, great, what's that mean for Ike? That means Ike's going to have a great sermon on Sundays. It's because the Holy Spirit is going to bring to mind all the things that Jesus taught him. Ike's going to have a great sermon every Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully. (coughs) But that was said directly to the disciples. That That was not said directly to you and me. It applies to you and me. We'll look at how that happens. But this was a statement given directly to the disciples. And we actually hear it echoed in Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased." We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of the scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is criticized oftentimes because, you know what, these Gospels were written several decades after Christ lived and died and and left this earth. And so it can't possibly be accurate, can it? The accounts that they have in there can't possibly be accurate because there's decades, there's years in between the events and the writing down of them. Jesus says, In essence, what Jesus is saying here is you're going to write down everything that I taught. You're going to write down the miracles I performed. You're going to write down the grace that I preached. And the Holy Spirit's going to make sure you get it right. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, all scripture is God breathed. Peter said, no prophet spoke except the Spirit moved them. And so for the disciples, the immediate context of this is you and I, 2,000 years later, can trust the word. Because the Spirit breathed it out. I remember another class I took in seminary. It was with Dr. Bruce Waltke. It was the Judges Through Poets. It started at Judges chapter 1, and it ended at the end of the poetic books, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. The first day we had a paper due on a, on a book. It was a book report. So that was the first day of class. And we were told by the TAs that Dr. Waltke was looking for very, something very specific in this book, in this paper. One critique of the authors of this book, the authors of the book we read were defending the historicity of the historical books of the Old Testament. And he was looking for one specific thing that he thought they missed. And man, I scoured the book. I did everything I could to try and find it. And I thought I had it and I got a B minus on the paper. And poor Casey, I love Casey to death. Casey was my TA, but I gave him all kind of grief that day. I did this, I said this, I blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, the one thing Dr. Waltke was looking for that the authors of the book did not talk about was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
and the writing of the scriptures. Man, I argued with Casey about that. I got it this week. The Holy Spirit is important to the preservation of the scriptures. And that's what he told the disciples the spirit was going to do for them. Not only the historical books, but the letters. The Holy Spirit worked with Paul. The Holy Spirit worked with Luke and Jude and John and Peter and all the writers of the New Testament and all the writers of the Old Testament to make sure they got the message of God right. Now, does the Holy Spirit help bring truth to mind for us? Absolutely, but not in the same way he did for the disciples. Because this canon is closed, the scripture, and we're not writing scripture anymore. You want, you want to hear God talk to you? Read the Bible. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you through the reading of God's Word. This is how God talks to His people today. It's through the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. He also, took, he also told the disciples that the Spirit would take them deeper into the truth. Jesus, in, in chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus tells the disciples, there are things that I, I want to teach you, but you can't handle them right now. Kind of that Jack Nicholson moment. You can't handle the truth. Have you ever read the Bible? And then come back a year or two later and read the exact same passage. He goes, man, how did I not catch that earlier? Jesus gave the disciples everything they needed, but they couldn't handle the full weight of the truth in that moment. Things had to happen. They had to mature. They had to grow. They had to suffer for some of those truths to be driven deeper into them or for them, as Jesus says, to be driven deeper into that truth. The same is true for us. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. I can read, I don't know how many times I've read John. I took an entire class on John. Well, the Gospels, not just John. But here I am, eight, not, eight years after graduate, almost nine years after graduating from seminary, and I finally got what Dr. Walkie wanted me to get. Apparently I wasn't ready for it back then. Apparently I wasn't ready to understand that the Bible is, is reliable because the Spirit inspired it. Or at least not as fully as I understand it today. And that's what Jesus says. I'm going to drive you deeper into the truth. You can't handle all the truth that you need to handle right now, but you will. And the Holy Spirit will do that. And then finally, verses, chapter 16, verses 14 through 15, the Spirit will drive Jesus' teaching home. The Spirit will not just reveal the truth to us, but it will drive the truth home into our hearts. Knowledge of truth is good, but when it comes to our standing before God, it's not enough. That's where the demons are. The demons believe, and woe unto them. When, when the truth is finally driven home, we loop back around to where we began. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As those truths are driven deeper, and we suffer, those truths will be driven into our hearts. As we repent, those truths will be driven in our hearts. We will see our joys in the light of God's glory. We will see more and more our lives in the light of God's magnificent plan and His magnificent glory. And we will obey more and more, and we will love more and more, and we will obey more and more because the Spirit has sunk those truths into our heart and made them a part of us. Jesus I'm going to wrap up with these words of Jesus from 1427, which he promises peace to his disciples. Peace is wholeness in our relationship with God, and the Spirit teaches us the truths and the things we need to know for that reconciliation and that peace to be ours. And he does it. God does it through the Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson, in summarizing the work of the Spirit in his book, The Holy Spirit, says this, and it's a little bit of a long-form quote, but 
bear with me. The Spirit who was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of a new creation by whom Jesus was anointed at baptism, who directed Jesus through his temptation, empowered Jesus in his miracles, energized Jesus in his sacrifice, and vindicated him in his resurrection, now indwells disciples in this specific identity. This is the meanings of the Lord's words, otherwise impossible to comprehend. It is for your good that I am going away. Do you want to know what the work of the Holy Spirit is in your life? If you're in the world, the Spirit is working to convict you. And you should listen. And if the Spirit is convicting you and you have questions about it, please come see me uh, later on following the service. But if you are lovingly obeying the Savior, the, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. It's filling you with life as He filled Mary with the conceived life of the Savior. He's empowering you to live a life that glorifies God, just as he empowered Jesus in his miracles. He is energizing you to live a life of taking up your cross, and he is at work vindicating your witness before a hostile world. The Holy Spirit is God living in you, God living in me. You and I are broken, sinful human beings who cannot bear the presence of God without a mediator. And yet God provided that mediator and through that mediator was able to provide the Spirit in our lives who applies the regenerating work of Christ and who draws us to love and obey Him more and more. What greater work could there be? Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, our Lord and Father above, we thank You for the work of Christ, but we also thank You for the Spirit that dwells in us, God living within us helping us to love you more, helping us to obey you more, and driving us deeper into your truth. Help us to live in the light and the power and the energy of that spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.